Yeah, as Lydia alluded to, uh, Reese and Larissa's time with us is coming to an end, and next week will be their last Sunday with us, and so we're going to take some time in the service to recognize our time together and to celebrate that, but also after the service, we're going to have a little something, and we want to encourage everybody to just stick around after the service, just enjoy some time together, and maybe to pass on some encouragement to Reese and Larissa, and just to thank them for the way that they've served Calvary over the last three years. No, it was two years ago, just a little over, that I applied for this job at Calvary. After months and months of interviews, you remember that, Michael? Yeah, with the search committee that he was heading, and with elders, and with staff, I was finally invited to come and to speak to the congregation and officially candidate for this role. But after that, I had to wait and see what would happen. The church would meet. They would vote on whether or not they would invite me to come here as the pastor. And I was no longer really a part of the process, right? My future, it lay in other people's hands. I just had to sit back and wait while others decided my fate, while you decided my fate. I have to say, that was a very uncomfortable situation to be in. Two years later, though, I'm here, and you're all asking yourselves, what were we thinking? <laughs> See, Mindy, my jokes are funny. Yeah. <laughs> but all kidding aside, it is a terribly difficult thing when major life decisions like where you'll work or where you'll live, they aren't in your own control, but they are completely left in other people's hands. And that's where things left off last week in the series on Ruth that we're doing. Ruth has this incredible risky plan for, to rescue Naomi and herself out of this perilous situation that they have lived in since the beginning of this story. But neither of them has any control over the situation anymore. Their future is now in Boaz's hands. It's completely up to him. Well, perhaps not completely up to Boaz. He certainly plays a role, but as we have seen, somebody else's hands have been guiding things. Someone whose hand has been directing the course of Naomi's life even before she moved down to Moab. Yahweh has been sovereign in her suffering and in her and Ruth's good fortune. And we've even seen how God was sovereign in the risks that they took. And today, we see how he is ultimately in control of their salvation. Because God, he is sovereign in our redemption. So here's a quick recap. Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons, Malon and Kilian, they left Bethlehem for Moab because of a famine in Bethlehem. There in Moab, Elimelech dies. The two sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. But after 10 years of marriage, Malon and Kilian also die, and neither couple has been able to conceive a child, which is devastating because no children means no heirs, there is no one to carry on the family name, no one to redeem the family farm, and there is no one to keep the family legacy and memory alive. Commentator Robert Hubbard explains how an Israelite's afterlife 
depended upon having descendants living on ancestral soil. So in their culture, the loss of land and heirs amounted to personal annihilation. This is the greatest tragedy imaginable. And so bitter and believing that God has taken everything from her, Naomi returns to Bethlehem and in chapter 1 verse 21 she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. But we've seen that Naomi's life was not empty. She had Ruth. Ruth who gambled everything to come to Bethlehem as a foreign barren widow rather than return to the safety of her father's home in Moab. Ruth gleaned in the field so that Naomi wouldn't starve to death. Ruth even challenged the gleaning laws so that she and Naomi might actually live and not just survive. And last week we saw Ruth take this enormous risk, proposing marriage to Boaz, the owner of the field that she gleaned in. And Boaz just happens to be a relative of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. And Ruth wants Boaz to marry her in order to accomplish two things. One, as their kinsman redeemer, Ruth wants Boaz to buy back the farm that Elimelech sold out of his poverty before moving down to Boaz and to restore it to the family. And two, through leverate marriage, Ruth wants Boaz to rescue the family legacy by having a child with her who, according to Leverite law, would be considered Elimelech's heir. Now, if Ruth's plan to restore the property and conceive a child who would inherit it when he comes of age works out, it will, for all intents and purposes, have reversed all the things that have been taken from Naomi at the beginning of this story and secure Naomi's future. Ruth's plan requires a lot of risk and sacrifice from both her and from Boaz. But we've seen throughout this story that the motivation behind all of Ruth's actions is loyalty and love for Naomi. All summed up in that Hebrew word that we have all come to love, chesed. Can you say it with me? Chesed. Really good. Hased is sacrificing yourself for the well-being of another. It is the love your neighbor as yourself kind of living that Jesus calls his followers to. And Ruth, she is the premier model of Hased in the Old Testament. But even though it's Ruth's plan and it's her and Naomi's future that hangs in the balance, she is no longer part of the process. It is now up to Boaz. And last week we read how amazingly Boaz agreed to partner with Ruth in the scheme despite all that it will cost him. He is willing to sacrifice because he is inspired by her chesed. However, there's a problem. There is another closer relative, relative who is a guardian redeemer and he is first in line. He's got dibs. Chapter 3 ends with Boaz going into town to settle the matter one way or another. And Ruth and Naomi, they are just left to sit and wait while others decide their fate. But again, 
it is not just up to Boaz or others to determine. Just as God was sovereign in their suffering and in their good fortune and sovereign in their risks, God is also sovereign in Ruth and Naomi's redemption. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. It starts, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer that he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and sat down. Now the reason that Boaz goes to the gates of the town, the city gates, uh, was that in that era, the city gates were more than just a doorway that people had to enter, go through in order to enter and leave town. They also acted like the town square. The city gates were the marketplace, the civic center, and the courthouse all in one. Essentially, town gates were the heart of the city. Notice that the man that Boaz is looking for just happens to come along right when Boaz sat down. Again, we've seen this time and time again in this story that this is not just a coincidence, right? Nothing happens in this story by chance. This is God's providence. His hand is directing things towards his desired outcomes. Another interesting thing is that throughout this encounter, we never learn this other man's name. Even though he is an essential character in the story who plays a crucial role in what will unfold. Certainly the author would have known his story, and so would Boaz. They are relatives after all. But he is never addressed by name, and we are never told it. Instead, the author substitutes the man's name for a Hebrew idiom that basically means Mr. So-and-so. By substituting his name for this expression, the author is saying that this man's actions, they are so dishonorable that he's not even worth remembering. This is a scathing indictment. Let's pick things up in verse 2. Boaz took ten of the elders from the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except for you, and I am next in line. And the other kinsman redeemer said, I will redeem it. Boaz gathers these ten elders of the town because they are about to do business, and these elders, they act as witnesses. Basically, like they were the notaries who ratified whatever agreement Boaz and Mr. So-and-so come to. But we might wonder, what is Boaz playing at here? Why does he suggest that the other man buy it? Why doesn't he tell him that he wants to buy it? And more importantly, why does he say nothing about Ruth? Boaz is a smart guy, and we need to trust him. You see, by speaking about the land, he is speaking the language that these men understand. Boaz puts the most tantalizing part of the bargain in front of the relative, and it's not Ruth. It is Elimelech's property. 
And you see, whichever relative redeems the land will be doubling their estate. And this is why Mr. No Name here is so quick to agree to do it without any hesitation or asking any questions. For Mr. So-and-so, this looks like a great deal. For very little money, he could carry out a respected family duty, perhaps enhance his public popularity by doing so. Financially, the investment was a bargain without a lot of risk. You see, with no known heirs to reclaim Elimelech's property, all it would require of him would be to provide for Naomi out of the profits from the field until she died. And then sooner than later, this field would be his. No wonder he jumps at this opportunity. But then it's at this precise moment that Boaz drops a bomb. He converts Mr. So-and-so's consent into a condition. Verse 5. Then Boaz says, Huh, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. There you go. Boaz reveals marrying Ruth as an extra stipulation to purchasing the land because he wants to put public pressure on Mr. So-and-so to do the right thing. As we saw last week, Leverite marriage was not a requirement of a kinsman redeemer. Rather, that was Ruth's idea. And she was challenging Boaz to go beyond the letter of the law and practice the spirit of the law. And following the spirit of the law, it is always costlier. It always requires more sacrifice, more faith, more loyalty, more chesed. And so when Boaz presents marrying Ruth as the dead man's widow, as Elimelech's widow, he suggests that she is legally she is a legally acceptable substitute for Naomi with respect to Leverite marriage. And by doing this in front of the elders of the town, in the middle of the town square, with all of the people looking on, the pressure is on Mr. So-and-so. Will he argue with Boaz, who we know is a man of incredible standing in the community? Will he argue with him that he is not legally obligated to care for his dead relative's dependence and legacy? You can imagine how that would go over. If he did argue, he would be the object of incredible shame and scorn. He only has two options here. Either accept the responsibility and redeem both the property and the family, or back out and let Boaz do it. Mr. So-and-so doesn't even put up a fight. Verse 6. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. That was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Mr. So-and-so says he cannot redeem the land because it might endanger his own estate. That's because it's one thing to care for an elderly widow, 
but it's a whole lot costlier if it includes this young Moabite woman and any potential children that she might have. You may recall that I said last week that there was a good chance that Boaz was already married with children, and chances are so was Mr. So-and-so. If he agrees to redeem the land, then everything he invests into Elimelech's property would go to the first child he has with Ruth, who would legally be considered Elimelech's heir. Redeeming would endanger his estate, as he says, because it would siphon off funds from his own property and leave a smaller inheritance and legacy for his own children. But doing chesed is always costly. You cannot show love and loyalty without sacrifice. Mr. So-and-so's response shows that he is only concerned about his own well-being and has none for Ruth, Naomi, or his dead relative's legacy. And with that, Mr. So-and-so slinks out of the story, forever to be remembered as someone worth forgetting. He has the infamy of anonymity, the disgrace of not being remembered by name because he refused to raise a name for his deceased brother. Verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all of the people, Today you are my witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Boaz's announcement, it completely juxtaposes Mr. So-and-so's. Through their responses, they have both exposed the willingness they have when it comes to doing chesed. Mr. So-and-so, he was responsible for redeeming it, but he was unwilling. While Boaz could say, this really is somebody else's job. Yet he shows this radical commitment to live a life of faithfulness committed by doing chesed. And just like when the home team scores the winning goal and the crowd goes wild, the people of Bethlehem, they see Boaz's commitment and they let out this roar of praise and they bless him for his righteous obedience. In verse 11, Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Now, if you're a little confused of why this is such outstanding praise, you wouldn't be the only one. This is steeped in Israel history and culture. Rachel and Leah, these were both wives of the patriarch Jacob, and their 12 sons, they made up the tribes of Israel. By praying that Ruth and Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, the people are wishing Yahweh would give Ruth fertility like they had. But this also hints at the foundational role Ruth will have in the people of God, just like Rachel and Leah have. 
which is pretty amazing when we consider how Ruth started out this story as this marginalized foreign widow. In the final blessing of verse 12, when the people pray that Boaz's family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, this is a very interesting and related blessing. You may recall the story of Tamar. It's found in Genesis 38. Like Ruth, Tamar's husband also died before they were able to have any children. She then had a Leverite marriage with her brother-in-law to have a child with him. But he also died. And the reason he died is because he refused to conceive a child with her. So like Mr. So-and-so, he was unwilling to sacrifice in order to show chesed. And so scripture says, the Lord put him to death. There was a third brother who Tamar had the right to a Levirate marriage with. But Tamar's father-in-law, Judah, he refused to give this last son to her. So like Ruth, Tamar came up with this bold plan. She disguised herself as a prostitute. Then she slept with her father-in-law, Judah, who didn't recognize his daughter-in-law, and she became pregnant with twins. The oldest name was Perez. Now, I know the Bible has some really weird stories in it. But this story is closely linked with the book of Ruth. First of all, the house of Perez was the clan from which Boaz and most of the crowd who are at the town gate are from. Second, like Ruth, Tamar was a foreigner who had incredible costs and risk to her own life perpetuated a family line that was threatened by extinction, which later became Judah's leading house, and thereby Tamar gained herself fame as its founding mother. Now to be clear, the Bible is not condoning Tamar's deception or saying that the ends justify the means. But whatever motivated, but what motivated Tamar to take this risky action was the same outcome motivating Ruth here to perpetuate a family line threatened by extinction. And so the people of Bethlehem, they pray for Ruth, that she may become just as famous as their matriarch for generations to follow, just like Tamar is for them. Both of these women were disregarded and forgotten when their first husbands died. Both of them did some questionable, risky things in order to save their families, and both of them demonstrated incredible loyalty. But Ruth, she's second to none. She not only follows the law, but she elevates it. But unlike Tamar, though, Ruth doesn't have any children yet. The path now is cleared for her to marry Boaz, but there are still 10 years of infertility to overcome. And if she and Naomi are going to be fully redeemed, they're going to need a miracle. Because try as they might, conception is out of both Ruth's and Boaz's hands. But not out of Yahweh's. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. 
and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. And then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you see in verses 13 and 14 how the author and the town women, they give Yahweh the credit for this conception and birth. And they give her Yahweh credit for all the things that have happened. It was the Lord who enabled Ruth to conceive. It was the Lord who did not leave Naomi without a guardian redeemer. See, Naomi was correct to believe back in chapter 1 that God was sovereign and he was in control of everything in her life, including her suffering. But she was incorrect to believe that he was against her or that he abandoned her. Now that everything has come full circle... With the radical reversal of her fortunes, Yahweh deserves full credit and praise for all of it. When the women say, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. That guardian redeemer that the Lord provided, that they're referring to, it's not Boaz. Now Naomi has someone who's even more closely related to her that will care for her in her old age. It's little baby Obed. This is the first time in the Old Testament that the term guardian redeemer refers to someone who's not an adult. Obed is Naomi's redeemer because Ruth, who deeply loves Naomi, is his mother. And Ruth's chesed for Naomi will guarantee that This child, when he grows up, will care for Naomi's future. Not only that, but in verses 16, when Naomi takes the child into her arms, and in verse 17, the women say, Naomi has a son, they are saying something that most of us miss, and that is, Naomi will be more than just this child's grandmother, but that she will actually be his foster mother. Remember how Boaz presented Ruth to Mr. So-and-so as a substitute for Naomi with respect to Leverite marriage. And how Ruth's whole plan was to have a child in order to carry on Elimelech's legacy. Obed is legally considered Elimelech's son. And here we see that Ruth has also gifted him as a son to Naomi for her to mother. That's mind-blowing to me. When my boys were young and we would go over to my parents' or my in-laws' house, and we were there, and yet our parents' or in-laws would sometimes take over the parenting duty without necessarily being asked. Sorry if you're watching this. I have to admit, sometimes it annoyed me. But the thought of giving up my children over to them entirely... Most days, that's unthinkable. (sighs) 
This is an incredible act of loyalty and sacrificial love. But that's chesed. As commentator Carolyn Cussis James says, it's not duty or legal obligation, but selfless love that motivates the person to do voluntarily what no one has the right to expect or ask of them. It is the kind of love that is we find most fully expressed in the gospel. And we see this expressed in the gospel. You know, hundreds of years after the birth of Obed in Bethlehem, another baby boy will be born in that town. And his father will also give him up out of selfless love. And this time, give him up for you and for me and for the world that he so loves. Because of our sin and rebellion, you and I have been cast off. We are like Ruth and Naomi who are living out on the margins, away from God's presence. Not because his hand is against us, but because each one of us have raised our hands in a fist of defiance against him by our sin and rebellion. Yet try as we might, we cannot save ourselves. Our fate is not in our control, and our redemption, it is in somebody else's hands. But thank God, those hands that hold our redemption, they also bear the marks of being nailed to the cross. You see, like Obed, this other little baby born in Bethlehem, he was also a guardian redeemer, this time to redeem the whole world. And if you put your life in his hands, he will not only forgive you of your sins and redeem your life for all of eternity, but just as God redeemed Naomi's suffering, Jesus can also redeem all the pain and the sorrow and the brokenness that you and I are experiencing in our lives right now. You see, following Jesus, it's not only about spending eternity with God in the future. It's also about how God loves his children right now. And how he uses all of our life's experiences, even the really painful ones, for our sake and for his good purposes. You see, though Naomi is experiencing great joy at the end of the story, there is no doubt that she still carries the wounds from the famine, all those years of infertility, from the loss of her husband and sons. She still has those scars. And they won't go away. But by filling her cupboards to overflowing, bringing her home and giving her a daughter-in-law who loves her, who is better to her than seven sons. And now a son and little baby Obed too. God is healing Naomi and showing her that she is loved by him. And all that she has suffered, it is not meaningless. It has purpose in God's bigger plans, though Naomi didn't live to see it. You see, the revelation that Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David, forces the story of these two struggling widows to take on a startling new dimension. Now, some of us may get bored with genealogies, but they're very important in the Bible. The genealogy we find here at the end of Ruth 4, it will continue on. 
and it will, additions will be made, and eventually those additions will be revealed in another book, the first book that we find in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1. There in that genealogy, you can read how Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Obed was the grandfather of King David, in whose line was born a man named Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus who's called the Messiah. He is the Savior. You see, without the famine, Naomi never would have gone down to Moab. And her son Malon, he would have never married a Moabite named Ruth. And unless Malon died, Ruth never would have married Boaz and given birth to Obed. And without Obed, there's no Jesse, no Jesse, no King David, no King David, there's no Jesus. And without Jesus, there's no Savior for the world. There's no redemption for anyone. But thank God He is sovereign. He is sovereign in our suffering, sovereign in the good fortune. God is sovereign in our risks, and He is sovereign in our redemption too. And I said that one of the main reasons for us studying the book of Ruth is to prepare us for suffering. And Naomi's life shows us that suffering is not worthless or without meaning. In God's hand, suffering is used for salvation. And so we can all say with joyful hearts that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. The other reason I said we were studying the book of Ruth was to answer the question, is God good for women? Friends, especially my sisters in the crowd. I hope that I've done right by Ruth, Naomi, and all of you, and that we can all respond, yes, he is our God. He is good for women. And not only is God good for women, but we, so, we see so clearly in these pages that godly women, they are so good for God's people and for this world. Ruth rejects the cultural parameters that confine women. She uses her wits and her voice and challenges the status quo, offering deeper interpretations of the law, initiating a radical plan of action, and then recruiting Boaz to join her cause. Without Ruth, Christianity would be without its founder and the world would be immeasurably poorer. In many parts of our world today, Women and girls continue to experience suppression. Their roles in society are often reduced to the four walls of their homes. Some governments refuse to educate girls or allow them to work outside the home or for women to give leadership to their communities. This is not only an evil oppression of women, but it is a terrible fate for the entire society and all of its people, including its men. But as Carolyn Custis James says, a woman's high calling as God's image bearer renders her incapable of insignificance. No matter what has gone wrong in her life or how much she has lost, even if her community shoves her aside, turns a deaf ear to the sound of her voice, or regards her as invisible, even if she's forced into a passive role in the community, she remains vital to God's purposes and is a solid contributor anyway. She simply cannot be stopped. This is because she is made in the image of God. 
And God is good for women. And God is sovereign regardless of what the circumstances say. As we end our time in the book of Ruth, there are some key lessons and applications for all of us. And one thing I think we learn from this story is we never have all the facts. We never have all the facts. Though things look hopeless or irreconcilable, there is always more going on than meets the eye. God is in the difficult and ordinary things of life, and we should not underestimate him or how he can use us. So we never have all the facts. I think the second thing we learn is we should never underestimate the importance of doing chesed, showing loyalty and sacrificial love to those around us. This story shows us how God uses the faithfulness of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Each day, you and I, we have the opportunity to show chesed to others in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. So the question is, will we be like Mr. So-and-so and shirk our responsibilities? Or are we going to be like Boaz and jump on board and see where God takes us? And you know, showing chesed here at Calvary in our church family isn't just a responsibility, but it's a command that Jesus gave us. He said in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Finally, the genealogy at the end of the story shows us that the chesed shown by Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz to one another, it has repercussions. And not just for themselves in their lifetime, but chesed their chesed even has repercussions for you and I today. And you know, we will never know how God might use our acts of loyalty and love. What's he going to do with our chesed? Will he use it in small or big ways? We'll never know. It's not up to us. Our job is to be faithful. And after that, we have no control over the situation. It's out of our hands. But it's not out of his hands. It's in God's hands. And our God is sovereign. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. And we can respond in praise of our good God. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father God, I am so grateful for your love for each one of us here. I'm so thankful how you use each of life's circumstances uh, for your good purposes and for ours too. You let nothing go to waste. I just pray that you would give us strength and courage and hope for tomorrow to continue to trust in you and walk faithfully. I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't have the hope of Christ that, Lord, your, by your Spirit, you would call them and that they would throw their lot in with you and with us. And they would come to discover uh, the transformation and the life-giving power of Jesus that we have by your Spirit.
Lord, we thank you so much for the, the, the lives of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and how they testify to the, to the impact of faithfulness and love and how you use it to build your kingdom. Would you do the same with our lives? Would you help us to show that same fidelity and love to each other here? And may you use it to glorify yourself and to enlarge your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.